Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Transatlanticist Politics Podcast at the America Centrum in Hamburg. My name is Andrew Sola. Today, I'm very happy to announce the first cooperative podcast with our sister German-American Institute in Rheinland-Pfalz, the Atlantic Academy, die Atlantische Akademie. And here with me from the Atlantic Academy are two brilliant experts on U.S. politics and transatlantic relations, David Zirakov and Zara Wagner. Welcome, Zara and David. Hi. Hello, hello. Thanks for having us. No problem. Great to see you and have you here. Uh, David and Zara also host the podcast Americas für Fossil, Politik und Gesellschaft in den USA, which I highly recommend, but it is in German, so you will need, except this episode, <laughs> of course, won't be. But I highly recommend it. It's fantastic. And today's episode will be published on both of our podcast channels. So I would encourage all of you listeners to subscribe to both podcasts. You can find information about Americas for Fossung in the show notes. So would you like to introduce yourselves and the mission and goals of the Atlantic Academy first before we get started with our subject today, which is the midterms? Absolutely. Once again, Andy, thank you so much for having us. We are very delighted to talk a little bit about our work. So the Atlantic Academy is a nonprofit, nonpartisan institute focused on civic education in regards to the United States and transatlantic relations. What does that mean? We are hosting lectures, panel discussions, seminars, exhibits, movie screenings, everything that has to do with the United States, politics, history, or culture in the state of Rheinland-Pfalz and also sometimes in other regions. And the goal is a bit to inform the citizens of our state about transatlantic relations, about the United States, because we have such a large military presence here. So we have about 50, 55,000 Americans living in the state. So it's really nice to have a little bit of that civic input to accompany that military presence. Yeah, and uh, hello for, to all for me, and and of course a thank you to to you, Andy, for the invite, and and that we that we can do this together, and yeah, the the, uh, the Atlantic Academy, where yeah, as as uh, Sarah pointed out, we are a mixture of a mixed institution of a uh, educational institution or a civic education institution, a think tank, and yeah, and in our work it, it rests on on three pillars, and as as uh, Sarah already mentioned we have more than 50,000 Americans in uh, the state in in Rheinland-Pfalz so we can do encounter events we can make meet and greets with Americans and we can try to foster this uh, German American relations in the state not only with exchanges flights to the US or from the US so that's that's really an advantage we have in our region and the second the education pillar is uh, yeah where we can yeah, host and and provide uh, events about about U.S. politics, economic, uh, or or yeah, maybe some cultural events. We have the advantage that we um, have new funding from the German Foreign Office, and so we we have been doing extensive cultural work since last year. 
and uh, for instance, cinema in concert series. So it's a very broad uh, field we, we work on. All right, so thank you uh, and welcome again, David and Zara. Today we'll be discussing the midterm elections in the United States. And not only that, it's never too early to discuss the presidential elections, even one day oh, or no. one week <laughs> after the midterms. So you can consider this our first presidential election podcast for 2024. Indeed, Donald Trump made sure that he dominated the news cycle after the midterms by immediately announcing his candidacy for president in 2024. Love him or hate him, he knows how to dominate the news. But let's get started on the midterms. My first takeaway is this. Before the elections, there was a lot of worry about election denialism, protests at poll sites, voter intimidation, and a number of other potential problems with election machines, counting, etc. But my first takeaway is a positive one. The 2022 midterm elections were actually pretty boring, and boring is good when it comes to elections. So what is the prevailing narrative about the midterms? Well, many people expected a so-called red wave, meaning that Republicans would take both the House and the Senate, and the reasons for this were historical. Traditionally, the party in power always loses seats in midterm elections. Secondly, inflation was considered to be a major factor that would help Republicans. And again, historically speaking, and this is obvious, economic problems always help the opposition party and hurt the party in power. However, Republicans did not perform according to expectations, and maybe the expectations were wrong. Who knows? However, they did win the House of Representatives, and they have a nine-seat majority, which is very slim, 222 to 213. The Republicans flipped a number of seats in New York, Arizona, and Wisconsin, among others. But again, they did not win as many seats as many predicted. The Senate is considered more of a failure for the Republicans because they failed to take a majority. Indeed, the Democrats increased their majority well, it was 50-50 tie with uh, Vice President Harris acting as a tiebreaker, and now it's 51 to 49. So why did the Republicans underperform? I'll just give four reasons, potential reasons here, and then I'll ask you what you think. One reason is that Trump chose to support candidates who are not quality candidates. And I think we're hearing a lot from many Republicans this phrase, quality candidates or candidate quality. We need quality candidates in order to win elections. So, for example, uh, the TV personality Mehmet Oz lost the Senate race in Pennsylvania. This was a uh, potentially not a quality candidate. Trump chose him, even though he didn't live in Pennsylvania. At least that was the accusation. Mark Kelly, the Democrat, beat Blake Masters in Arizona. And, of course, Herschel Walker lost to Raphael Warnock in Georgia. And all of these were as it were, hand-picked Trump Senate candidates. Second reason might be that women and young people were angry about the Supreme Court decision overturning Roe versus Wade and therefore threatening uh, abortion rights. Reason three, and this goes back to Trump, is that many Republican voters might be sick and tired of election deniers and other extreme opinions in their party. As a result, they split their tickets 
which means, for example, the Georgia Republicans voted for the Republican Governor Kemp, but not for the Republican Senate candidate Herschel Walker. And the fourth reason that I'll throw out there, and these are just a sampling of many reasons, is that uh, the Republicans did not create an effective message that they are better than the Democrats at solving economic problems and namely the problem of inflation. So this reason is that they really didn't have an effective message for dealing with the economic crisis. So what do you guys think of these reasons or do you have other reasons? Yeah, I just uh, just want to start at the very beginning. So I think it's very important to look at the expectation first uh, so that we can better frame the main takeaways from the uh, midterm elections. And as you uh, already pointed out, the look at the history of midterms shows that, that losses by the president's party are quite normal and therefore, to some extent, expected. And uh, when you look in the numbers since uh, 1942, the average loss of seats has been just under 26 in the House of Representatives and nearly four in the Senate. And and we have in the, in the 21 midterm elections over the last or the past 80 years, the president's party has gained in the House of Representatives only twice in 1998 under uh, Bill Clinton and in 2002 under George W. Bush. And both times can be attributed to very high presidential approval ratings over 60 of over 65 percent on the one hand due to the quite good economic situation under uh, Clinton and on the other hand, due to the foreign and security uh, policy situation under George W. Bush, the war on terror, the war in Afghanistan and the upcoming conflict with regard, which started in March 2003. And in the Senate, uh, we have only five times or gains have been made only five times. And here, and that's that's interesting when when it comes to 2022. In addition to the good approval ratings of the president, the reasons also lie in the states in which Senate elections were held. Um, so are they usually safe or 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 swing states or toss up states? And after all, it is only and we have this effect that it is only one third of the 100 seats every two years. So in the Senate in the Senate elections, so there is a certain yeah certain amount of 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 states and and um sometimes they are very red sometimes they are very blue and and uh and this makes it uh, much more uh possible to to win states or to to gain states uh even as the the party of the president at that time so that's the reason why we have five uh um, uh, f- that, that we have gained five times uh, in in, a, in the last eighty years, and in the run up to this year's midterms, these lessons uh, from history meant that Biden and the Democrats were facing a major defeat. And you you said it, the uh, performance of the the Democrats uh, was in the end much better than expected. And because neither the economic situation was particularly good, we have a high inflation, rising interest rates, high fuel prices. Stagnant employment rates, uh, rather stagnant GDP, nor did the president have high approval ratings around 40%. And so I calculated that with comparable ratings, ratings, the presidential party had lost about 30 seats in the House and three to four seats 
in the Senate. And and uh, there are a lot of reasons. You, you uh, already mentioned uh, some of these. And I think that it is a mixture of first the legislature uh, or the legislative success of Biden in the last couple of, or in the first two years of his administration. And second, as you mentioned, uh, the, the role of Trump in the public perception of the Republican Party. So Biden has some significant legislation to his credit in, in his first two years in office, the Infrastructure and Jobs Act, the Inflation Reduction Act, up to 700 billion US dollars for climate action, uh, Chips and Science Act. And, and there are two other things in the final weeks before the election alone Biden pardoned everyone convicted in federal courts of possession of marijuana. That's one thing with, with I, regard I, I to wanna, youth. I want to yeah. break in here because uh, as as you were discussing this, you were talking about the positive selling points of what Biden had done. And all of the four reasons I gave were weaknesses in Republicans. And I think that's an interesting way to reconsider how we, we shape this. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, one media narrative is failures by Trump plus Republicans, but there's the uh, competing narrative, which is actually, can we whisper it? Biden is not an old senile man with dementia, but it actually might be a, uh, an effective president as far as Democratic priorities go. Yeah. Actually, yeah, 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 absolutely. I, I would, I would second that because if you look at at his first two years, and he learned a lot um, uh, while he was vice president under uh, uh, President Barack Obama, when when they discussed what can we do in the first two years up to the uh, first midterm elections, and and in the aftermath, uh, aftermath, there were a lot of discussions about didn't we do well enough or was this enough? And I think that that drives or that drove Biden in the first two years to do as much as possible with regard to legislation, with regard to the majority in the House and the majority, the very, very, yeah, the, this 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 cl very close uh, uh, relation between the, um, the the Democrats on one side and the Senate and the uh, and the Republicans on the other side, and I think this was really a successful two years uh, in uh, two years in in his first administration. Jumping in there, yes, those are all good democratic, I think, you know, cells and talking points and that they did get a lot of done, the White House and Joe Biden. But I think we need to be also a bit careful that we're now, yes, they did comparatively very well in the midterms, the Democrats. And of course, now we're analyzing the past two years and also a little bit of that election cycle through that lens or through that result. At the same time, what we saw the, during the campaigning for the midterms, a lot of the candidates didn't want Biden anywhere near. He didn't do a lot of campaigning. They brought in the big guns like Barack Obama, um, sort of, you know, even like Bernie Sanders or the more popular figures within the party. And Biden barely, to be honest, left uh, the, the surroundings of, of where he lives or the White House. He didn't, towards the end, he did a bit more of the, the campaigning. 
But we also saw that very nicely in the Georgia runoff election, for example, or in general, I think Georgia is a great example for a lot of the points you both hit on, that we here had a candidate with Raphael Warnock who focused so much on character and competence as selling points. And he really tried to localize the race too. Like he didn't want a bunch of people coming in from DC to, you know, campaign for him, advertise for him. He really tried to focus on his competencies as a politician, as a representative of Georgia. So I think Biden, again, yes, it was a very good midterm results um, from a historical perspective, but I'm not a hundred percent sure how much that can be attributed to Biden, especially if you look around younger voters, right, who played a crucial part and who showed up, I think, in the second highest number uh, overall, but who are doing it mostly also issue driven, like they are not very satisfied with Biden. Biden was sort of this compromise in 2020. And yes, and he was the one who could be Trump and, you know, a bit of a safe choice. But if we talk about enthusiasm, I think what drives people to the polls, and I know, David, you'll, you'll talk about a little bit about what you think that is, um, and maybe you have different uh, opinions here. But I think we need to be careful when we talk about it. Is it like the Democrats? Is it Joe Biden? Is it, or, you know, or are we talking about the issues? Yeah, because that's just as a sort of footnote to, to our discussion. <clears throat> My question to, to David uh, about that other narrative that Biden actually achieved things in in his legislation um that the next question would be what voters did he turn out due to that legislation that would not have gone to the polls like is there a group that you're thinking of specifically did a certain piece of legislation help youth come out or gay people or black people or whatever yeah, I, that's that's not really my my field of expertise, but I would say yeah, young people, women, especially when it comes to uh, to the question of abortion rights uh, in the U.S. and th these are the driving factors. Uh, of, for instance, when 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 you look at uh, at uh, pre-election polls, that they're that that Democrats or people who who tend to vote for Democrats that they have some issues, the main issues, and this is abortion rights, it's healthcare, it's to some extent the economy, but I think they look at the economy from a different perspective as Republican voters do. Uh, there is Supreme Court appointments. This is one uh, of the main drivers. And I think that you can see women, young people, if you if you look at at the voters, or if you try to to characterize uh, uh, the voters in the U.S., you you maybe would say, okay, Democratic voters are or live in urban areas. They are under fifty. Um, they are more diverse in terms of gender and race. And so, I would say this is yeah. These are the voters uh, who are uh, uh, voters of the Democratic Party and maybe who uh, see their advantages in, in the um, legislature um, over the first two years of the Biden administration. What's interesting here at this point, if we're already talking at voters, like about voters, like, sorry, our listeners, I promise we also had kind of a list that we wanted to walk through of like <laughs> the topics and issues <laughs> and our structure and um, but now we're already talking about, you know, the issues and voters, which we wanted to save for later. But I say, let's go, uh, for, let's it. go for it. 
Excellent, Andy. Thank you. Because of your question, right, like which kind of voting groups turned out that maybe didn't before. And once again, in this case, maybe not specifically because of Biden, but I think one of the interesting developments that we saw and now we have some better exit polls and some better analysis um, about voter turnout are that the Democrats gained a little bit with rural voters. So, of course, people in rural areas, David mentioned, you know, the, the Democrats are really strong in urban centers uh, on the coast. So rural voters ob obviously still voted in huge numbers for the Republicans, but Democrats made here some gains. For example, in Illinois, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, Washington, And it has a lot to do with the type of candidates they also ran. So the best example, the prime example, is John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, um, who won the Senate seat. And he really focused his, his turnout, he focused his campaign also on rural communities. And we now see that um, in a lot of the counties, he had a bigger vote share than Biden had in 2020. And he's really, he came across... And very believably so, in my opinion, as a working class, you know, candidate, very down to earth, sort of, you know, the guy you can hang out with in a diner and who understands um, how shitty classic, inflation is, the, the things like that. classic candidate when they used to ask, who would you rather have a beer with? Barack Obama or Exactly. Mitt I would share a PBR <laughs> with John Fetterman. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes. Um, and we see that in similar House districts, too. So, for example, Illinois, uh, the 17th district, it is also one of the few ones uh, that voted for Trump twice, but now it's a Democratic House seat, right? So what we see here, and I think that's interesting for longer term trends, and we're going to talk about 2024 later, is that rural areas are also diversifying. So we have on the one hand, their population is declining to a degree, but at the same time, we also need to move away a little bit from that idea that rural means automatically white, automatically low income, things like that. So we have a diversifying area um, and that has a, a little bit also to do with the fact that a lot of liberals after the large part of the pandemic moved to the countryside, right? They left cities. Again, the areas are diversifying in general. So I think that's an interesting development to keep in mind. And I think they'll play a bigger role in the future. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't want to be the one who destroys ideas, <laughs> but if we, if we, no, no, that, that's not. When that's my not... students have bad topics for presentations or essays, I say, I hate destroying your dreams, but yeah, yeah destroy course, our dreams, please. Yeah, of course, we 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 try to to identify issues who are or who determine election results, and to be honest. Research in this field shows only two factors to be related to the performance of the, the presidential party. It's the president's popularity and the number of presidential party seats up for election. These are the only two significant factors. And the more popular the president, the smaller the losses. And as I said before, in a few cases, there were also gains, but very few cases too in the House of Representatives. And the more seats that must be defended, the higher the losses tend to be. And surprisingly, economic values such as inflation or, or the employment rate have so far had little or no impact on, uh, on on election results. That's, that's to some extent, for political scientists, it's, it's really devastating <laughs> because you think, <laughs> what the heck is going on? The you podcast have only ends two here. <laughs> yeah, the podcast ends here. 
No, the the, the problem David, is that stop even talking. we'll be out of a job soon. <laughs> I'm sorry for this. I, I, I I'm. <laughs> it's not my fault. It's it's research from the University of California in in uh, Santa Barbara. Most liberal elite. And they, yeah, it's all it's always the same. It, <laughs> it must it must be from uh, from California. But yeah, it, it, and and the, even there, the significance of these criteria are really low it's in the 0.5 area and that's that's not very high as a significant uh in significance but in uh, in this election in 2022 shows that even this significance will be weak will be weakened um because this is statistically spoken it's an outlier that we have only nine seats lost in uh, for the Democrats in the House, and even once uh, a gain of one seat in the Senate. That's that's an statistically, it's an outlier, and yeah, it's 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 a puzzle, and I'm not really sure. And maybe we ha we have to think um, new ways, and we have to think about what what trump did to this country and what trump did to this ele to to election itself and uh, and campaigns uh because i have the feeling that we we now have to uh see a time before trump and a time after trump or with trump and maybe this is one of the factors which are in which cannot cannot be calculated accurately in statistics and that's that's something which which um yeah i try to get my head around uh, can i just can i just jump in with one statistic uh, this was from a cnn exit poll uh, they asked uh, voters uh, if trump influenced their decision um and 54% of voters of all parties said trump was not a factor what do you make of that stat yeah, the question is if you um, or whether you whether you see Trump as a direct factor or, or indirect factor. You uh, so so something you uh, something which is part of the system uh, now, and you don't really recognize it as as a part and as an as an effect. So that's that's. But that's all. It's always a problem with polls. Uh, if you look at the national election study uh, polls, you you can see that a lot of people say I'm liberal or I'm moderate. And if you look at the questions, are you against abortion? Are you against gay marriage? Uh, the the part of of the people who are against it and who uh, label themselves as moderate or even liberal are uh, significant, and that's that's something uh, that's that has something to do with perceptions. And perceptions are not really, yeah, they're perceptions, <laughs> nothing more or less. So, so maybe it's it's difficult to to identify Trump as a factor if you take him as uh, or if he is a indirect factor uh, when it comes to systems or, or campaigns and, and so on. 
I think the the crucial point here, Sandaud, I actually, I agree with you. I thought you meant to question the the development of rural communities. I was like, wait a second. <laughs> There's um, when you talked about uh, busting dreams and bubbles. But of course, it's true. It's when we talk about election results, we always have to be careful, when we, you know, regarding correlation and causation. So so what exactly motivated voters? And we have such a um, the voting block is not monolithic, right? We have so many different voting groups that it is hard to figure out, okay, what exactly uh, maybe sort of were, were the causes here. But I would still argue a little bit that even if we have, say, one or two factors that are very crucial for election outcomes, oftentimes we have such close elections and close majorities that even these smaller issues, be you know, in question mark sort of uh, smaller issues, be it a Supreme Court ruling or be it um, specific other incidences or be it an October surprise like in 2016 might influence the people who wait until the last minute to vote and who do they then break for. And I think in this case, we also had the development that people who voted later than the independents broke more for the Democrats than was initially expected. Yeah, I like that point. And and I do want to raise this as just something for our European audience. I think that sometimes the flexibility of the average American voter is slightly underestimated. We think and this is the theme of the split voter phenomenon. So there are people who are lifelong Republicans or lifelong Democrats, but they simply won't vote for a candidate that they think is horrible. And and I just want to add a little bit to that because I am an American citizen. I vote in Brevard County, Florida, which is a hyper deep red Republican district. And you would think that they would follow all Republican trends and stereotypes. And indeed, DeSantis, the the potentially uh, next president, we'll see, presidential candidate, uh, DeSantis beat Charlie Crist, the Democratic governor candidate, 64% to 35% in my county, which is a huge victory. So you would think, okay, this is a very red Republican place, but look at the local issues that we voted on in our local referenda. One of the items was a tax increase to protect the Indian River. You would think, oh, Republicans never vote for tax increases. This referenda passed 70% to 30%, so it's more popular than than DeSantis, a tax increase. (laughs) Increased teacher pay. What would you think? Republicans would not want to increase teacher pay. Those woke teachers should get paid less. No, teacher pay increase, yes, 58% to 42%. And lastly, a new fund for affordable housing for low-income workers. Deep Republican district, they would not support this. They did, 53% to 47%. So, I mean, I think it's important to realize that the narrative is dominated like Trump, anti-Trump, this or that, but there is a lot of flexibility and open-mindedness for local issues like protecting the river. Yeah, and I, I can I can add to this um, uh, this vote splitting not only on on the on the um, on the regional or or state level, voters choose different parties for different positions at the state and federal level. For instance, in in, in Kansas, uh, voters elected a Republican senator and a Democratic governor at the same time. It went exactly the other way around in in New Hampshire and Vermont. So. I think uh, when when it comes to to regional or or, or statewide issues, uh, I think it has something to do if you 
are uh, if if this affects you as a person uh, in in your community, and um, then I think it changes, and you have a different point of view in the opposite to to something which which has to be decided on the federal level on in Washington D.C., which is uh, whatever uh, one and a half thousand uh, miles away <laughs> or so. So that's that's uh, I think that's one thing. So um, if you are affected by a policy or by a decision, it yeah it makes you wonder whether there are alternatives out there, and these alternatives do not have necessarily the same party color as as your local uh, representative or your your senator or your governor or state uh, secretary of state and what, what whatever that's also a great example because we are oftentimes when we talk about the US political system and elections it's you know more critical and is democracy in danger and things like that but the example you gave uh, Andy I think is great because this thing of ballot initiatives is I think something that uh, Germany could also learn a lot from, right? So we have elections that need to be redone in Berlin, and they also have to vote on a climate thing. And instead of doing that together, uh, they're holding separate elections. Um, I assume they know why. But anyways, so I think the ballot initiatives is a great example for US democracy because it it can motivate also different voting bases of voters. And it can, in my opinion, again, and I haven't read all the the yeah, in-depth studies on it yet. But if we look at Michigan and New York in comparison, for example, and the issue of abortion, which was on Michigan's ballot as Proposition 3, whether or not people want to enshrine abortion access in the state constitution. And just from observing this from, you know, I have friends and family in Michigan, uh, a lot of young women who are very motivated because of that, who've never, who I never even perceived as being political in any way or form. And they were sharing it on Instagram and they were really fired up about making sure they have access to abortions in their state. And then there's some analysis out of New York where the, the governor's race was much tighter for a while than people anticipated, or, you know, where Democrats also lost quite a few seats. And there are some arguments that are being made because abortion was also wasn't as big of a factor here because it was already codified in the state that was more of a hindrance for Democrats. There were also some other, of course, many other reasons. But I think that's just an interesting comparison between the two states and what these ballot initiatives can also bring to the table in terms of democratic participation. Brilliant. I have nothing to add. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. <laughs> same year, same year. <laughs> but but maybe 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 one thing because uh, we, we we talked about uh, the election results and I think uh, we 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 should add uh, that of course not only and uh, and you 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 showed this with with your question and with your view on on the on the uh, local uh, level. In the midterms, uh, elections went much better for the Democrats, not only on the federal level, but also on, on, on the state level. Um, in the gubernatorial elections, Democrats were able to pick up, I think, three states, was it? Uh, Massachusetts, Maryland, and Arizona. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So they lost in Nevada, but they... Yeah, they 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 could uh, um, compensate this, and at the same time, and this is uh, something. This is uh, one one takeaway uh, for for me. Yeah, the role and the importance has grown significantly. Who becomes governor, secretary of state, or attorney general is much more significant this year and receives much more attention, media attention and attention by. 
so-called experts like us. <laughs> and, um, and, and, and the discussion surrounding the certification of the 2020 election, presidential election, and Trump's attempt to influence um, those who are in cha charge, the governor and, and the secretary of state uh, in Georgia, uh, for, for instance, this has shown how important these positions are at the state level and ultimately at the federal level when it comes to certification of, of a election result. And so this this yeah this victory in in uh, in Nevada was was really important for for Democrats and maybe even for democracy for the U.S. democracy uh, because we, we we know that 2024 when when it's really close um, then we will see maybe the same or or yeah very similar uh, strategies uh, by Republicans, maybe by Donald Trump, if he's uh, the next candidate, uh, a Republican candidate. And that's, yeah, I think that that was a really important uh, step. Do we want to move on to our final point now? Almost. One more thing, just almost, okay. almost. We're almost going to look ahead to the future. Um, but I think one thing I would like to discuss real quick with both of you, because I haven't come mm -hmm. down on an opinion on it either way, is a specific democratic strategy that was used this midterm cycle. And it was, I don't want to say pioneered, but in Missouri, Senator Claire McCaskill used it to great effect during her 2012 run. And it is a strategy that... In tight races, the Democratic Party during the primary season, right, not to the midterm elections, so during the primary season, supported Republican candidates that they considered very far right, very MAGA, very, very out there to make sure that they would become the candidates for the midterm election because they assumed them to be easier to defeat, right? So just a few, a little bit uh, of data here. They spent a ton of money as well. Um, according to one analysis, it was about $19 million across, across 12 or 13 races. They weren't successful in all these primary races to get the more extreme candidate elected. But we had gubernatorial contests, Senate races. I mean, we saw uh, we saw some of these play out, congressional races. So a lot of the spending was done on advertising, and they usually did it in three ways. So either they were tying a very far-right candidate to Trump, to the MAGA movement. Um, that's, for example, what they did in, in Pennsylvania. They also attacked more moderate candidates, right, to prevent them from uh, winning the primary. Or they branded some candidates just, you know, as too conservative for the state. So my issue with this is, and again, they won a lot of these races, that at the same time, the Democrats were pushing the electoral message or their campaign message of democracy is in danger. We must do everything to protect democracy. We need more moderate candidates on the Republican side, right? How dare how dare the Republicans uh, allow these crazies in their midst, to paraphrase. So I'm just curious, what, what is your take on that? Was it about time that Democrats also play politics, uh, you know, start to playing chess uh, instead of checkers? And Sarah, yeah. can, can I just can I destroy your dreams? <laughs> go for it. Again. <laughs> I mean, what we forget about professional political operatives is that it doesn't matter if they're working for Republicans or Democrats. They're going to figure out a way to win. And if it means 
doing things that other people might find less than ethical, like spent, let, why spend our money on our own positive message if that money would be more effectively spent in getting a weak candidate elected? I mean, yeah, it, yeah and Democrats are hypocrites. All right, that that is definitely one take. No, no, no. And here, okay. But here's my thing. That's no, I wanna... the end of this podcast oh, episode. This is just the beginning, gentlemen. Just, just the, the beginning. No, 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 no. This I'm not asking this from a point of naivete. Like, of course, I know politics is a dirty game. Excuse me. Our partner state is South Carolina from Rheinland-Pfalz. We know how the game of politics is played. Um, but the, the, there are other like interesting issues connected to it because one argument was, okay, since they didn't even, the more extreme candidates weren't even successful in all the races they supported, there's also an argument, well, that money could have been better spent, for example, in New York, where they, you know, lost the seats that would have ensured potentially their, their majority in the House. And I do believe that nowadays... Voters are smarter. And like, yes, we can say we can be cynical about it. Like, yeah, politics is always dirty. Like, that's how the game is played. But I, especially younger generations, I think, do see this this hypocrisy. And I'm not sure, you know, that that, that is a strategy for the future, especially if you look ahead to 2024, because all these candidates that have been propped up, they have now a larger database of donors, of contacts, of potential voters, of name recognition. So I just wonder... Yes, okay, maybe it worked in this election, but how does that accumulate if we're looking ahead 10, 15 years when the Senate map becomes trickier, the House map, whatever? So I'm just saying, I'm not sure, yeah, it can be effective, but how sustainable is it? Yeah, but I, I don't know. Um, uh, I don't think that this is really the start or the, the beginning of a trend and, and, and of a um, uh, of a strategy which which will be used in every election cycle. I, I think you're absolutely right. It's not really consistent. And um, it shows that even the Democrats <laughs> are a real politica and uh, they they try to, to weaken uh, uh, the opponent's party. But uh, this is, of course, a, a very dangerous strategy. And an important factor was the quality of the Republican candidates in this and, and, and the Trump candidates. Uh, and, and it paid off. But I'm not really sure whether this would pay off when it comes to a Ron DeSantis Republican Party in uh, 2026. Yeah. I, 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 this wouldn't be a strategy uh, or a, a successful strategy for, for, for Democrats uh, then, because the candidates Trump endorsed were less successful than in the, uh, in the primaries. And, and even in the primaries, he, 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 he very rarely took risks. Uh, we, we have one uh, example in Wyoming where, he, uh, where, where one candidate run against Liz Cheney, a, a popular Republican, and one, but this is one maybe risky or one risk he, he took. But most of uh, the time, it, it, it was very, uh, we're very safe uh, constituencies and, and, and states. So I'm, I'm not yeah. sure uh, whether this is a strategy for the future. All right. Well, thank you for your can, opinions. Can I, <laughs> yeah. Oh, Andy, please go. Yeah. Can, can I just add something? And I think this will help us move on to, to the final point. The, the point you raise is one about uh, something, one about ideological purity. So so the Democrats claim to be these holier-than-thou protectors of American democracy and the Constitution after Trump's attacks on Congress and all of the election denialism. 
Right. So it is disappointing when these people play dirty, the Democratic operatives play dirty by donating to extreme Republican candidates. But that kind of raises the issue of of ideological purity in both the Democratic Party and the Republican Party. And Republicans have been struggling with this idea of what is a Republican anymore, what is a conservative anymore, because Trump has divided the party. And and that's taking us into the future. I don't think, and I don't know if, if you have any insight, what the Republican Party stands for anymore. I just don't know. I mean, what, what will they be running on in 2024? <laughs> I literally have no idea. Are they the party of sensible economics and, and low budget deficits and paying off the national debt? I mean, and, and they don't even, I don't think they even released something like a coherent political platform. So I'm really curious if ideological purity is at stake, what will a pure conservative or Republican ideology look like? in a year or two years from now. I just don't know. Very nice segue, Andy, for, for our last part, looking ahead into the future. Yeah, but also a, a fair point, because for the midterms, they released, the Republican Party released a commitment to America, I think it's what it's called, their their plan for, you know, what would they implement if they gained power. And it was very vague. That is a polite way to phrase it. It was basically a one-pager PDF. I mean, there was a little bit more on the homepage and stuff like that, but it was just very vague and very broad and definitely not sort of any, in my opinion, really substantial policy outlook or you could see where they stand. Yeah, maybe it's it's the way to work uh, with a party without leadership. And um, we we don't know whether Donald Trump or, or Ron DeSantis will lead the party into the... Uh, presidential election and there are some uh, Republicans or former Republican uh, members of, of the Congress who said um, there will be no Donald Trump in the 2024 um, Republican race or uh, as a candidate and for instance Paul Ryan the former Speaker of the House and that's really interesting but we we saw this in 2015 and 16 um, uh, and so I think maybe that's that's one reason why this is a so uh, a vague uh, document, and that they don't really know where to go. But one thing maybe uh, we know is that there will be 167 members of Congress who believe in the big lie and who believe that the 2020 presidential elections were stolen. And I think this is with, with regard to. U.S. democracy, um, yeah, really a threat to it. And and, and I think as, when, I, when it I, comes I to I want to jump future, in here going yeah. back to the points of hypocrisy and stuff. There are 167 who claim they believe this. And I think there is a difference. If that is a winning claim to make, I think they make that claim. I don't know if we can access people's agree. Yes, uh, agree. Tr true beliefs. But Yeah, that's true. What will be interesting to watch, I think, so the new Congress, um, for everyone listening, convenes on January 3rd, right? The Constitution mandates Congress convenes once each year at noon on January 3rd. Uh, so time's a bit ticking, and maybe we can also have a quick look at what the Democrats can hope to accomplish until then, maybe what they have already accomplished and what might be some of the issues that are coming up next year. I think one point that I want to make off the bat is one structural change that I think is very interesting and important, especially because we are talking right after the Georgia 
election win for the Democrats, which gives them an actual majority. And that means that for the Senate, there will be no more power sharing agreement, right? Because before we had equal representation of both parties. So meaning there was equal representation within all these different committees, which of course increased chances for tied votes and just like slowing down the process. And now the Democrats will have one more member on committees. And big if, but if they stick together, they can truly advance some of their own things or they can act more effectively, especially if they want to, especially if they want to put, for example, judicial nominations on the floor. There are less chances for Republicans to hold up the process. Um, it's, it's better for their oversight power as well. And of course, people like Joe Manchin maybe have less of an outsized role potentially in this setting. And footnote, because that was an article I read that I found very uh, amusing, less stress for uh, the vice president, Kamala Harris, because I guess her and her team were a little bit pissed during the last two years uh, that she always had to be on standby during many times in terms she had to cast that decisive vote. And I guess it yeah, also interfered with a lot of travel plans and some of her own um, issues because she, again, so many times where she had to cast a vote, way more, I think, than ever in historical uh, comparison. So I'm sure Kamla will be relieved as well. So any things that you're looking forward to, be it until January 3rd or afterwards? Yeah, maybe. maybe. Um, uh, so for the, for the next two years, uh, Biden will have to govern in a divided government. That's, that's for sure because of the Republican majority in the Rep House of Representatives. And, and I'm convinced that he tried to continue to get legislation uh, through Congress. And we, we talked very briefly about uh, New York. And we have a lot of, I would say, moderate Republicans from New York, for instance, uh, who won their districts. And maybe uh, this will weaken the, the majority in, in the House of Representatives when it comes to legislation. But in the Senate, there is still the filibuster. There is still uh, the necessity of uh, getting 60 votes in a procedure uh, vote uh, when it comes to end the debate and come to the, the final vote on, on a bill. So this will be an obstacle for for uh, Democrats and for for the White House uh, in the next two years. This is the background to uh, to recent efforts uh, to pass important legislation. Um, so this includes the Respect for Marriage Act, um, which is also intended to secure same-sex marriage, and it passed, I think, three four days ago. So first in, in, in Senate uh, with uh, 61 to 36. So uh, one thing and in the in the House with 258 to 169. And uh, this means that in, uh, in the Senate, there were 12 Republicans and in the House, 39 Republicans who voted for this act. And that, this is a quite remarkable, and I would say this is a, a, this is a success for Democrats and the White House in these uh, in this um, so-called um, yeah how how does we call this time between the elections and and the new Congress sometimes lame, lame duck lame duck but <laughs> so lame is <laughs> no the other, the other important bill and it was 900 billion dollars <laughs> we we just for the non non-american audiences the defense budget was passed yesterday we're recording this on on uh friday the 9th but it's 900 billion and when you consider i think we've donated the us has donated maybe like 
uh, or has promised to deliver $20 billion of military aid to Ukraine. That's out of a public budget of $900 billion, so that's basically nothing. So, but that was it's a big deal to pass the defense budget as it's the biggest budget that needs to be passed. I, I don't, I'm concerned about the, the future of Ukraine funding. The Republicans have said that uh, they're not going to give a blank check to Ukraine anymore. I think from a strategic perspective, that's a mistake. And the message itself is a mistake. That stuff can be said in private, I think. Um, but I don't think McCarthy, who is going to probably be the new speaker after Nancy Pelosi, meant it the way it sounded. Um, but but we'll see about how the aid to Ukraine continues. And again, I just want to add the point that if for some reason the Republicans say we're not funding this anymore, then the European and NATO coalition to support Ukraine uh, fails as well. So it is a big deal. It's a huge deal. And um, we'll see what happens about that. It'll definitely, uh, yeah, it'll remain exciting, U.S. politics. And maybe from my point, concluding two things that I will be Uh, looking out for with a little apprehension, I will be honest, because I mean, as part of our work, we also do interviews and things like that. And I'm sure we'll be asked a lot about the efforts of oversight in a Republican-led House, right? Because that is something the Republicans campaigned heavily with. And people like Jim Jordan in the House, they now run the Oversight Committee. And they already said they have a bunch of topics they want to investigate. On top of the list is Hunter Biden and his business dealings and what that might mean for Joe Biden, the Afghanistan withdrawal, the situation at the border, the handling of COVID relief funds. So there are a bunch of issues that they want to look at. But especially, I think the The spectacle they want to make out of, uh, you know, running an investigation on Hunter Biden, and which is an issue that is very popular with the base as well. I think that will suck up a lot of productive air potentially, and that might fall into the same time, of course, as well as raising the debt ceiling. So right now, you know, U.S. government funding also is like a third point, which is running out on December 16th. So hopefully um, there can be a continuing resolution passed or, you know, some some poly- or procedural move to keep funding the government. But at one point, they will also have to tackle this, this issue of the debt ceiling. And it's not the first time that that would become yeah, a part of the negotiations with potential government shutdowns and things like that. So I'm, I'm hoping that there can be found some kind of middle ground, because otherwise, it will be, it'll keep us extremely busy. And it will also, again, um, suck up a lot of air in the pol- policy and politics process. Quick final question. And you can ask your cat there, Zara, <laughs> if, if the cat would prefer to answer. <laughs> I tried to keep the microphone closed out. Like... <laughs> that's okay. 2024, Trump-Biden rematch? I think it's really difficult at this stage. And uh, don't uh, want to answer. No, of course not. We, we've been no, uh, no. burnt before <laughs> with our predictions yeah. regarding presidential yeah, elections. I... Uh, I think uh, we 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 had an event um, on on conservative women um, last week. I think was it, and I think it's really interesting to to look at um, Ron DeSantis and that he has the the potential to fit to the family values conservative women have. And um, this is something which is a misfit uh, when it comes to Donald Trump, of course. And to add on, uh, Ron DeSantis has all the conservative values, policy values that Donald Trump also promoted in his presidency. So he has a point and he was very successful in the Florida 
uh, state election. So maybe he is one candidate. But um, as far as I know, uh, when it comes to polls in the Republican Party, he's not as popular as Trump, of course. And that, that will be the question if he can uh, close this gap. As, as a Florida voter, I am impressed by DeSantis's political skills. You probably don't remember, and I only remember this because I landed in, in Melbourne, Florida, and as I was driving home, it was DeSantis's first day as the sitting governor of Florida, and on Florida NPR, they were doing a, a feature on his first announcement. And his first announcement as governor was uh, a new office to deal with climate change in Florida. Hmm. Except, of course, he didn't call it that. He called it climate resilience or something (laughs) else. But he recognized that all of these wealthy Republican donors who live on the beaches up and down in Florida were worried about their islands washing away. Yes, they did partially, yeah. And and that speaks to to my earlier assessment of Brevard County. He knew. He knew. I'm going to get all these Republicans, and I'm going to also give them climate defense. I'm just not going to call it that, but it will guarantee their donations and money and support. So he's clever. You know, he's he can if he chooses to, he would give Trump a a, a run for his money. I don't know what would happen, but he's a capable enough and experienced enough politician to to uh, at least do battle with Trump. But we'll see. I just hope they're trying to keep the primary calendar calendar somewhat in sync. So that is just my oh, last no. procedural thing. I mean, Joe Biden again. It'll it'll come down. It'll come down to him. You know what he what he wants to do after this midterm. He has he yeah. has the power to say I'm going to run again. But looking at his age yeah. and but Zara, yeah. think of how much how much easier our explanations of the primary to European audiences will be when they screw it up again. Also, yes, oh hallelujah. God. Trust me. Every time I don't have to talk about the Iowa caucus again is a blessed day. Um, um, that is for, that is for sure. So, yeah. so they will start with South Carolina. It's it's great. Yeah. So, so I'm you know I'm excited to maybe see what will just, happen. Just for our benefit, maybe we should propose to the Democrats just do it via alphabetical order. Yeah, just just the Democrats oh abroad. Goodness. Just. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Anyway, thank you so much. That was such a fun discussion, and I hope it's not our last. We should do some more in the run-up to the 2024 presidential elections. I'm sure we'll have a lot more to discuss. And maybe, of course, it's good that you didn't make uh, predictions because (laughs) I hold my guests to their predictions years later. Anyway, thank you so much. I'd like to thank uh, Zara Wagner and David Zirakov at the Atlantic Academy in Rhineland-Pfalz in Kaiserslautern for joining me today. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us. And this will also be the Americas for Fossil podcast. Yeah. Subscribe. Please subscribe, too. Thanks, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Just so you know, once again, 
The views and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guests or the host, not the American Centrum, which does not take any institutional positions on politics or policy. Thanks again for listening.